Good afternoon and welcome to Everyday Law. I am your host, Bob Clark. We have a rare privilege today. We have a returning guest who's had a unique arc of her governmental career. Welcome to the show, Katie Fry Hester. Thank you. It's great to be here. I like calling you Senator Hester now because the last time you were on, you were uh, a candidate for the office. And I think that there was some concern that maybe that wasn't going to work out. But as it turns out, you were successful in your electoral debut. Yeah, the number the numbers were close, but I squeezed in, and once it's a win, it's a win. It absolutely is. As always, I have to preface the show by saying the opinions that are offered on this radio show are not those of Howard County Community College faculty, staff, or employees. And while I doubt we will be giving out much legal advice today, insofar as we regularly do so on this show, it is not intended to be advice for individual legal situations. If you have a legal problem, it's vitally important that you acquaint a lawyer experienced in your particular area of the law with the facts and get a valid opinion. Well, first of all, I'd like to congratulate you on your victory. 526 votes. Was that the amount? So on election night, it was only 154. I remember. And then once all the absentee ballots came in, it was 1,146. Oh, that's spectacular. Yeah. Some would say a landslide, but it didn't feel like one. So did you have any anticipation that the the absentee ballots were going to be so strongly for you? Not really, no. Okay. Um, I think in general, it's hard to say because Democrats tend to vote early, vote by absentee, but then a lot of military and overseas personnel also do that as well, and they're generally Republican. So. so have you gotten feedback on what the composition of your electoral mandate was? It's pretty darn close. I mean, rough numbers are 40% Democratic, 40% Republican, and 20% Independent. Wow. So as is true in, in many races, whoever can carry the middle, those 20% who are independent, can win. Have you gotten feedback on why you carried the middle? No. Um, you know, I was advised early on that this would be a ground game, that knocking doors was extremely important. And together, you know, with a great group of volunteers, we knocked on 30,000 doors. That's so, extraordinary. And, and my win number was supposed to be something like 29,000, and it was 31,000. Wow. So had you gotten 29,000, that would have been insufficient, I guess. It would have. So it seems like the turnout for this race was, was quite substantial. It was incredibly high across the state and particularly high in Howard County. One of the things, and I think I puzzled this through recently with the now state's attorney, Rich Gibson, was that Governor Hogan won, and yet it seems like Democrats did spectacularly otherwise in the state of Maryland. Is, is that your perception of it? Yes. When I was knocking on doors, he was incredibly popular in, in my district. And I think it goes back to his ability to carry the independence. After the Democratic primary, we had several wonderful candidates and the, the Democratic candidate who won was pretty far to the left. Uh, and so I think Hogan was able to carry kind of that moderate middle. I've tried to get Ben Jealous to come on, but he that hasn't, seemed, great. He's hasn't a great guy. seemed so enthusiastic after his defeat. Wow. So you have, it seems, and this is just from reading things in the Washington Post and the Baltimore Sun, which have both been very have had pieces that were really nice about you. And I thought that was a great thing because very often that's not the case. Um, Have tried to fashion sort of a middle ground with your political stances on things. Do you think that's an accurate assessment or how would you describe it? I would say that that is accurate, but there's always more in terms of like the details. Sure. And what I found as a first-term senator in Annapolis was that 
in the early stages of a bill, whether it's in my committee or somebody else's committee, um, that's where the bipartisan collaboration can take place. Okay. Once you get to the floor of the Senate and something's on third reader, um, there's it's. I mean, President Miller always says this is the Senate of Maryland; anything can happen. But I've I've found that it's hard for the Republican side of the room and the Democratic side of the room to actually hear each other. You know, sometimes there are frivolous amendments offered, and sometimes there are genuine amendments offered. And so I think that there's work there's work to be done in in, in that respect, where where bipartisanship actually can occur on the Senate floor itself. Um, but in general, you know, I've I've been in in my career. You know, I've worked at bringing people together, and I can usually see the multiple viewpoints. Um, of an issue, and so I tried to bring that with me to Annapolis. Seems like that was a fairly valuable commodity. I think it is, and you know, I'm getting a reputation for being the swing vote on stuff, which is a really interesting place to be because you get advocates, you know, on both sides, you know, coming after you um, and saying, you know, hey, how do you stand on this? And it's it's a powerful place to be, and sometimes a scary place to be. But it's I'm happy to be there and to be able to represent, you know, all the people of District Nine. So, had you ever been in the Maryland Senate chamber before your election? I had been there, but I mean, not paid nearly as much attention as I did this <laughs> I year. Bet. How was it to walk in for the first time? It was it was amazing. Um, thinking back to the day I got inaugurated, I was actually sick and I had laryngitis. Oh gosh! So I couldn't talk to anybody. But my my parents were there. My volunteers were you know watching from the other room. Um, my daughters were with me on the Senate floor. My husband was there. So it was just it was just amazing. And I think I probably had goosebumps at least more than once as I got sworn in. That's a historic place, that's for sure. It is. You're also there at a time when there's a real change in leadership, that Maryland's had longstanding leaders of both the House of Delegates and the Senate. And Mike Bush, may he rest in peace, passed away in this last year. And I know that Mike Miller has a serious cancer issue. Obviously, you weren't in the legislature before, but I suspect that there is some sort of undercurrent that pervades the place a little bit right now with the changing of the guard. Yeah, I think people are really curious uh, to see what's going to happen in in the House next year. I think most of us, when we were called in for the special Senate, because the Senate has to convene at the same time the House convenes, but we were only there for 15 minutes while they were there for hours and hours. We were really glad that, <laughs> that we weren't part of that difficult decision. I think nobody knew exactly how it was going to turn out. Um, and, you know, I, I knew all three candidates, none of them very well. Um, obviously, Speaker Bush is going to be incredibly missed. Very much. I had seen um, the, the Speaker Pro Tem in action and thought that she had done a great job. And I think that she will continue to run to run the House, uh, acknowledging, you know, everybody, all the different voices in the room. And I'm really looking forward to that. It is an interesting era in Howard County and in the state that, I, I was fond of Speaker Bush and, and know Mike Miller personally, but, you know, they're white, older guys, and mm-hmm. it really is more of an era of diversity. And I, I think that's a wonderful thing. Is that something that you think will yield change in the laws in the state of Maryland? Hmm, that's an interesting question. I think diversity and inclusion um, are incredibly important, and I think they have been incredibly important. I mean, if you look at the legacy that Speaker Bush left, a lot of that was around um, not diversity and inclusion and, and bringing more people to the table. So whether um, the current Speaker does more of that or not, I don't know. Um, and how that plays out on the Senate side remains to be seen as well. No decisions on that yet. 
No decisions. No, I am. I am confident though that 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 President Miller has some kind of plan. I am confident that he does too, and I'm going to try and lure him in here and extract it from him. I think he would love that. He's a you know he was my seatmate this year. I sat right next oh, to him. Oh, that's fantastic. And he's a gentleman, and he's a funny guy too. He is a very funny guy. Very funny guy. So, was there anything that you had sort of an expectation about how things would be in the Senate that didn't prove to be true? That didn't prove any to. apprehension, any concern, any thing of that nature. You know, I wasn't afraid of this, but what surprised me was the sheer volume of bills that came through okay. and the sheer volume of what we voted on. And before I went in, I remember, you know, hearing that you, you, there wasn't time to read any bill, every bill. And I couldn't imagine, you know, voting on a bill that you hadn't read. But there's, there's, there's absolutely not enough hours in the day to focus on, on to read every single bill. So you have to rely on the committee staff and your own staff and the, the fiscal and policy notes. And so as an engineer and somebody who's usually a slow and thoughtful decision maker, that was challenging for me. And actually, somebody pointed out that I was often one of the last people to vote in the room. And it's because I was really thinking carefully about all my decisions. And I have a wonderfully diverse district. But that means that none of the, the votes are, are easy for me. Because if it's a if it's a party line vote, you know, then there's some people will like it, some people won't, and some people are in the center, you know, so I had, I had to think carefully. Well, you are, by a happy coincidence, my senator. So I'm very glad that you try and put more time into understanding the bills. And if you vote late, I, I support that wholeheartedly. Thank you very much. It's hard to convey to the audience how much work there goes into this part-time job. Mm -hmm. Did you find that during the session it was a part-time job? Oh, my goodness, no. Okay. It was full-time. I mean, we worked – I mean, I usually started – you know. Eight o'clock, seven o'clock in the morning, answering emails and stuff. Session was at eleven usually, um, and committees started at one, and you know ran sometimes until you know the wee hours of the morning, you know eleven, twelve at night. So it was it was an amazingly long day near the end, um, and but very 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 rewarding. Is there anything that you focused on in this first session, in terms of my own legislation? Yeah. yeah. Uh, so there, there were a few things that were really uh, priorities for me, okay. uh, campaign promises, if you will. Um, I obviously live in Ellicott City, although not in the historic part. Sure. And so working with uh, Delegate Courtney Watson to secure funding for the rebuilding of old Ellicott City was incredibly important. Obviously, it's an old mill town, so it's built on um, rivers. But in addition, uh, there's been development around it, and also we're in a period of climate change. So... I've always you been acknowledge the existence of climate change? Oh, my goodness, yes. We have to in order to survive. <laughs> yes, well, I concur. Not everyone does, seemingly. Yeah, I'm, I'm acknowledging it moving on to mitigation because that's what we need to do to survive. Um, and so we were able to secure uh, – the governor had put $5 million in the capital budget. We were able to retain $3.5 of that directly for Ellicott City this year. And then we filled up a previously dormant fund called the Flood Mitigation Grant Fund with $8 million over the next three years, which will be prioritized for districts um, that – of historic value that have flooded more than twice in the past five years. So it's a total of $11.5 million. So how fixable a problem is it, do you think? I'm an eternal optimist. I, um, I know that there have been you know, people all over the map on the plan that the county executive has chosen. 
I think we needed to to do something big in order to really fix the problem. I didn't want to keep send, sending um, you know money just to have it flood again. Sure. So I fully support the county executive's decision, and right. I'm looking forward to helping him um, raise the money. I believe in public-private partnerships. I believe that the cost should be spread out from the county to the state to the federal government. And I also think that there might be foundations and companies that would be willing to support in some manner or, or, or form. I would think your professional background would allow you to kind of understand this stuff a little bit more than many of your colleagues. I mean, I've been working on things with a triple bottom line, social, economic environment for 20 years. Right. Um, and so I think Ellicott City is an amazing place to kind of say, hey, look, you know, climate change has been part of the problem. How can we also make it part of the solution? So when we rebuild, you know, how green can we go? You know, what kind of businesses can we attract where there's, you know, an economic and a social and a tourism like component? Sure. Um, so it's it becomes a really good example of um, that other that other cities can look to who are also formerly mill towns. It's got a tricky situation with so much of the development and parking lots and courthouses and stuff overhead, which no longer absorb water. And I, I, I worry that that's an insurmountable obstacle, but I'm glad you are optimistic and I'm glad that it's being sufficiently funded. And I, having had the last two county executives on to discuss this thing, it's a, it is a, a difficult problem. And I'm not sure anybody knows what the long-term solution is. I suppose we've got to hope that it rains a little bit less too, maybe. Yeah, I wouldn't put any money on that, though. Um, what, what, I, what I'm continuously optimistic about, though, is the technology and the innovation that exists. So my understanding is that part of the county executive's plan will go out for a competitive RFP. And we can invite innovative solutions to how that tunnel is done from all over the world. Um, and so I look forward to seeing the results of that. That would be a wonderful development. I love downtown Ellicott City, and I feel for the merchants and the people who live there. And it's just, you know, it's a sad state of affairs. So you've been through a legislative session. Is there anything that you feel that was the greatest accomplishment of, of, of the Senate in particular, but overall the government this year? There were oh, the greatest accomplishment. I mean, it really depends. It can on be how... accomplishments, plural, if you feel there are some. <laughs> it depends on who you talk to. People okay. like different things. Um, what does Senator Katie Fry Hester think will be the thing that brings the greatest good to the state of Maryland? I mean, I think what we've done in education okay. is very bold. Okay. Uh, the Kerwin Commission recommendations were put into policy through the Blueprint for Maryland's Future, and that has an, an over a $1 billion price tag associated with it. But that will move us from being an average state um, and it, in, an average, in an average country you know, towards, you know, world-class education. And that involves, you know, paying teachers more. That involves um, more, um, you know, grants for, for pre-K. It involves, you know, investing in um, poverty-stricken areas. Uh, so I think that that is, that is good for Maryland. And it's also going to require us to look really hard at how we fund that next, um, next year. And how is that going to take place, do you think? I don't know. Um, the most... The most frequently cited um, answer to the funding problem is um, uh, legalizing marijuana. That personally is not something I have, um, I'm in favor of. Sure. But I, I do think that economically it makes, it, it makes sense. Um, just, just like the casino money has boosted education and now that's locked in, <laughs> yeah. that could be another option. Um, the other really interesting thing that's actually built into the bill that not many people are talking about 
is um, something that Senator Gazzoni did around, um, it was called the Wayfarers Bill. But it's basically making sure that when you buy something online, that those taxes come back to the state of Maryland. Absolutely sure. And there's a huge amount of money that we're going to get from that as well. And that's built into the blueprint for Maryland's future. So which of those two options is likely to produce more money, the marijuana or the wayfarers? Or is there any apt comparison for that? I, I couldn't answer that okay, question. Okay. Yeah. I'm intrigued. I have a daughter who lives in Washington State and uh -huh. has for seven years. And of course, there were many grave concerns about that it would go to hell. And, you know, and it appears not to have. Um, there's been some reduction in the incidence of drunk driving in that state. It may mean more people are driving high. I don't know. But it. There was uh, a funny joke about that. I think it was one of the senators on JPR who said that. They they got to make a law or something about swapping this bud for another. Yeah, that, that, <laughs> that's driving. a good one. That's a good but, one. Um, if we could stick on the education topic sure, for a minute, I'd love um, to. there was one bill that hasn't gotten that much acknowledgement yet that I put through. I put okay. it through as a statewide bill, and it came out as kind of a pilot project for Howard and Carroll counties. But it's to look at the lines by which we draw school districts. Okay. Um, right now, everything is done within a county. Line. And so what my bill would have would have done is to enable cross-county collaboration. So some Carroll County residents going to school with our guy. Or, or vice versa. Sure. And um, we worked on that bill, and it flew out of the Senate um, and got caught up with a number of really good questions in, in the House. Okay. And so what, what happened at the end was that the bill was passed as a local bill that gives Howard and Carroll County the authority to collaborate. Um, and so actually there's significant crowding in, in Howard County and um, there's actually an empty school. So is that Marriott's Ridge or which, what's, where's that? No, it's not, mostly on the Eastern side. Oh, okay. You know, like look at Howard High, it's like 150% okay. capacity. Um, so would you then take those kids and send them to Carroll County or would they get distributed to further West schools and the further West kids? Would go, how, how would that theoretically work? So I think, um, Redistricting will be, have to be part of a of a plan no matter what happens. Sure. As a mom of two kids, you know, I was thinking to myself, what would it take for me to put my child, who will be going to high school in two years, on a bus to Carroll County? Sure. Um, where um, one of the high schools is sitting empty and just has a new theater. It's got still has plastic on the seats. Doesn't sound like that hard a thing to do if it's going to be a nice facility and. Well, it's, it's people are still like concerned. They want a Howard County, you know, edu education. If you live in Howard County, um, and so for me, what I was thinking about is if there was a magnet school up there, um, maybe something in cybersecurity, another science, um, that, and something where you get um, an additional degree, like they currently do. Um, Howard County Community College has a dual enrollment program with many of our high schools in Howard County, sure. as does Carroll County, so that you can get basically your first year of community college done while you're in high school. And that program is maxed out in many of our local schools. So if this if this high school could become a magnet for something um, and, and a drawing card that would now allow people to opt in, not force them to redistrict, but opt into that program, that could save us from building a 14th high school. Um, that which is would an save a lot of money. idea, Senator. So, and the beauty of my bill was that it didn't originally have a lot of details. It's up to the two school systems to work it out, which I think in order to allow for that innovation and creativity, you have to let people on the ground make the decisions. You know, maybe a computery thing too. In the modern age, it seems like that gets everybody jobs right and left. It sure does. You know, and 
Well, that's I like that idea. I think that if you could do a magnet thing, it would certainly draw people. And if it has programs that aren't available or are overcrowded elsewhere, it would seems to me that might be quite an inducement. I would opt for it. Um, so with regard to education, Howard County has renowned schools historically, and there always seems to be a tension between keeping them doing well and paying for keeping them doing well. And it is a price tag that always seems to be going up. Is there any kind of long-term solution that you perceive for funding education, you know, over and above trying to help the schools that are disadvantaged under the Kerwin program? Right. So there's, um, out of that, um, out of the blueprint for Maryland's future, there's like $250 million that will, extra dollars, that will be invested by the state okay. next year. And $75 million of that uh, goes to increase teacher pay. Um, so, so that will help. Um, and sorry, what was the question again? Well, really, I was, uh, you, you kind of answered it. And what I was going to say also is one of the issues that I know from having spoken to lots of teachers is Maryland does not have the most spectacular teacher retirement program. The actual mm -hmm. pay isn't so good. And I do wonder if that's another element of, you know, keeping teachers and getting the teachers that you want, whether you're populating a school that's going to be a magnet school in Carroll County or an inner city Baltimore, or even some of the more difficult schools here in the area. I don't know whether that is something that has been addressed by the legislature this year at all or whether that just kind of goes by the wayside. Yeah, I know that teacher pay and having a ladder for for increased professionalism so you could advance as a teacher sure. were both included in the blueprint. I'm not sure about the retirement, but I can get back to you on that. That would be wonderful. I will talk to my teacher buddies about that, <laughs> okay. too. So getting away from education is there anything in particular going forward that you think the next legislative session will be your primary focus? Um, for me personally, there's a couple of things over the interim I'm really excited to work on. Um, one of the questions that we grappled with, it wasn't in my committee, but the Senate as a whole grappled with, was um, the question of minimum wage. Okay. And as you know, that, that went through um, and it will be an, an economic boon, um, a way to lift um, working class people. I voted for the bill, and then at the same time, I remain concerned that small businesses, and particularly businesses in rural areas, will struggle to implement that. Sure. Um, and so kind of on the heels of voting for that, we formed a small bipartisan group, started in the Senate with three Republican and three Democratic senators, um, and we pulled in the Maryland Chamber of Commerce, NFIB, and um, the Greater Baltimore Coalition, and several other local chambers of commerce to really look at what we could do over the interim to um, support those small businesses. And so looking at things like tax credits for those small businesses, um, access to capital, workforce um, recruitment and retainment. Uh, that is the work that is going on over over this, the summer. Sure. And I hope to come back with several pieces of legislation that have been vetted by this committee, have bipartisan support. Um, the other thing that we're looking at is um, small business health care association plans. There are pros and cons to that and how it works with the Greater Maryland Exchange. But I think, you know, really thinking about those small businesses, which are currently defined at different levels within the state legislation, sure. sometimes they're 14 or less employees, sometimes they're 25 or less. Um, it also kind of depends on the industry, you know, because different industries are different scales. So, I mean, I would like to see overall a more nuanced look at what constitutes a small business and how the variety of... Um, 
uh, pieces of legislation that, that we pass, you know, impact them. I would imagine that some places it would have a profound impact and some places it wouldn't make all that much difference. So I am on the ski patrol with my husband out in Garrett County. Um, WISP? At WISP, yes. And, I mean, the economics of Garrett County compared to Howard County are completely different. They very much are. And you're bordered there by West Virginia and Pennsylvania, which have seven or eight minimum minimum dollar wage jobs, which will stay that way. So now you're looking at, like, almost a double, you know, for those small businesses to pay. And so it's just like, I mean, it will be great because it will – the people who are working there who are able to get jobs will have more money to spend in those economies. But at the same time, there are small businesses, um, you know, who may have to close because they can't afford to pay that. So it's really, I mean, the question that I keep looking at is like, how do we, you know, overall, if this is a good thing, how do we provide that safety net for those small businesses who are at the fringes of our of our state can survive and succeed? Seems like tax credits would be a pretty as long as there's a profit, right? Yeah, well, that there. If they're not turning a profit, they won't get tax credit. That's right? a good point. So maybe some kind of subsidy. If you're not, I don't know. I, that's that is a quandary with this. I mean, I'm an enthusiastic proponent of, you know, having a living wage for people, but you can't drive all the businesses out of business either. Yeah. So I'm I'm excited. We actually just got a word that we're going to have a small session at the Maryland Association of Counties um, summer conference, and so we'll have some preliminary ideas to test on this at that point in time. Well, that sounds quite exciting. Any long-term political aspirations for you? President Hester, perhaps? (laughs) No. I've gone gray enough. Um, I really, I've really been taken one day at a time. You know, I'm I'm committed to my family and um, and, and enjoying scaling back a little bit so I can spend more time with my husband, more time with the girls. Sure. Um, You know, I was, I was, as I was thinking through the things that I'm working on this summer, I mean, the common denominator I, I find is this interest in an economic development, you know, with a social and, and environmental aspect to it, the triple, sure. the triple bottom line. So, um, you know, I think just – I mean, I'm, I'm interested in that, like, across the state. And an example, in addition to the, the minimum wage thing we just talked about, we're working with um, Delegate Charcutian and the Department of Procurement on something called Maryland Food for Maryland Institutions – and this would be a huge boon for um, our farmers in Maryland if they could sell more of their food to Maryland um, prisons, Maryland hospitals, Maryland uh, universities. Um, but so why shouldn't that be the case? That just seems like common sense to me. Procurement is very complicated. Yeah, okay. Um, and there's and it's influenced by federal subsidies. I mean, I just found out that a lot of our milk comes from Texas, which is bizarre. But um, that that that's something. I mean, you asked about political aspirations. Yeah, yeah. I don't I don't have political aspirations. Sure. But if I could find these win win solutions, like more Maryland food purchased within Maryland by Maryland institutions, um, I would really like in four years to look back and say, you know, hey, our prisoners are eating Maryland grown kale. You know, and it's well, better and for that, everybody. It just it just seems like it would be a commonsensical solution that probably historically was the case, but as supply chains have changed, you know, you can bring in your milk from Texas, and it's probably cheaper than bringing it in from Garrett County, I guess. Yeah. Well, I'd like to thank you very much for your return appearance and congratulate you on your victory. And I am hopeful that you will be able to realize your various ideas in the next session and uh, look forward to having you on after that session next year. Thank you so much. It's been a pleasure to be here. This is Everyday Law, your host, Bob Clark. Thank you and farewell. Connect with us. We are Dragon Digital Radio.